There are over 4,000 different world religions, and I'm sure there's more, but you have things like Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, Universalism. You got isms on isms on isms, thousands of world religions that armchair theologians all tell you will lead to the same place. It all leads to the same place. Scripture says there are really only two paths that we may walk and build our life on. And each path leads to a different destination. You can choose the way of of faith, the gospel of grace that's unpacked through scripture that the Holy Spirit reveals to us. Or you can choose the path of works, which if we look at all world religions, most of them are a system of works. They're a system that is based on doing, achieving, merit. You must do this to get this. For you can either say, it is by grace I have been saved through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. Or you can say, man, I really need to do this. I got to perform this sacrament. I got to meditate a certain amount of time. I got to jump through this hoop and I got to do all of these different things. And maybe by merit, I can earn blessing, enlightenment, eternal life, entry into that next chapter of existence in the great beyond. Thousands of world religions, but there's really only two paths. In Galatians, Paul has been defending the gospel of grace against a group that wanted to add to Jesus's work. They would say things like, yeah, you can believe in Jesus. It's great that that you believe in Jesus, but you also must adhere to the law. The law we see laid out in the Old Testament. There are hundreds and hundreds of commands that you must adhere to. Things like dietary restrictions. You can't eat this. You can't eat that. Things like circumcision, which is a very big deal in the Galatian church at this time. You must be circumcised. You must do all of these things before you are made righteous, accepted into God's family before you are approved by God. And Paul's like, no, that's not what God has revealed to me. That's not what God has revealed to the other apostles. That is not what God has revealed to us personally. Paul counteracts their gospel plus by declaring justification happens by faith. Now, justification is a term that we were introduced to a few weeks ago. Justification by faith. Justification by faith. That word justification, we we don't really use that a lot. We use the word justify a lot in our everyday language, but that term justification just reeks of academia and, and seminary. But just for our purposes today, the term justify or justification means this. Go ahead. When God declares a sinner righteous, not guilty, and in right relationship with him. And so if you need to know what justification means, this is your frame of reference. This is a good thing to write down because you'll, you'll be somewhat lost later on if you're like, well, what does justification mean again? So justification is when God declares a sinner righteous, not guilty, and in right relationship with him. And we're, we're going to get a little bit theological here, so just bear with me, but we just got to unpack this a little bit. 
How is a sinner made righteous, made acceptable to God? If it's not by works, then, then how? Well, apart from Christ, we're guilty of sin. The wages of sin is death. That is separation from God. We have turned our backs on God. That is condemnation. That is guilt. But God in love sent Jesus as an atoning sacrifice who paid the full price for our sins so that we could be forgiven. But it doesn't end there. Jesus also lived a morally perfect life. He perfectly adhered to the law. Jesus never sinned. Jesus never disobeyed. And so when we put our faith, when we put our faith in Jesus, a great exchange happens. It's important to understand this. A great exchange happens. Our sin is credited into Christ's account of which he paid for. His righteousness in life and death is credited to our account. So that when God looks at you, a sinner by nature, he sees righteousness because you have been united with Christ. He doesn't say there has been the sinner. He says there has been who is righteous because he is in Christ. That's a a crazy biblical truth to, to wrap our minds around, but It's an important biblical truth, a foundational biblical truth. In fact, Martin Luther said, this doctrine is the head and cornerstone of all other doctrines. It alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without the doctrine of justification by faith, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. This truth is foundational. And as Paul argues here, It's biblical. In seminary, I had to write a very long theological paper. It's not super long, but 15 pages. Some of you have never written a 15-page paper. That's okay. I'm better than you. Uh, (laughs) uh, No, I'm not in any way whatsoever. But it was 15 pages, and, and I had to just, it was a statement of belief. This is what I believe. And I couldn't just say, I believe that, that unicorns are real and uh, Jesus rode a rhinoceros around and that uh, we are saved by eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Like, I couldn't make up ridiculous claims because I had to root everything that I believed in Scripture. So I would say, I believe that God is one in person, three in essence. God is a trinity. I would have to back that up and, and cite Scripture. I can't just be like, I believe this about God and not find what I believe about God in the Bible. And so in chapter three, what we find is Paul doing just that. He begins defending justification by faith. This doctrine of we are saved by faith. And last week he talked about their experience. Were you indwelt with the Holy Spirit through works? Like, did you work enough and then the Holy Spirit came upon you? Or was it through faith that you received the Holy Spirit? And the answer would have been, it's by faith. We, just, we put our faith in the work of Jesus and then we were filled with the Holy Spirit. And here, he now says, I'm not just making this idea of justification by up. I'm not just pulling it out from the clouds. It's actually in your Bible. It's actually in the Old Testament. So go to chapter three, Galatians chapter three. If you do not have a Bible, 
in front of you. I encourage you to get a Bible in front of you. You can use your phone. I have a bunch of Bibles back there, the translation that we're going to use. If you are new here or you don't have an actual physical Bible, which I, it's great to have a physical Bible sometimes, because if I have my Bible on my phone, I have great intentions, but I end up on social media. And, and, and so uh, it, it's good to have a physical Bible sometimes because you can't really swipe out of it. Um, you can't get rid of it. And so we got physical Bibles back there uh, for you. It's our gift to you. Take it home. Have fun. Uh, don't, you know, you use it. (laughs) It's our Bible to you. I don't know what I was going to say there. Um, Turn to chapter three, go to verse six, Galatians chapter three, verse six. So he just said, did you receive the Holy Spirit by works or by faith? And then he says this in verse six, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous righteousness. So he's citing Abraham here. Now Paul's opponents, the false teachers in Galatia, most likely would have said to be saved, to become a part of God's family. We talked about this. You must adhere to the law. You must take up the commandments of the Old Testament and you essentially must become Jewish in practice. And so Paul is like, well, let's look at the father of the Jewish people. Let's look at Abraham, the quintessential Jew. So we talk about the Jewish people being God's people. It all started with Abraham. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, Abraham chose, or God chose Abraham to to work through him and build this great nation. There was nothing special about Abraham. He came from a pagan family. It is by grace that God chose him. He said, through you, I'm gonna build this, this, this huge nation my people. And then we see that happen throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament. God's nation grow, and then we see a bit of a switch in the New Testament. That nation kind of explodes open, and, and all sorts of people are, are, are brought in. And so he cites Abraham, and, and he cites something from Genesis fifteen six, And it's when, when Abraham is waiting on God. If you remember, Abraham, is, he's very old. Uh, he, he's very, very old, and uh, he, he wants to have a child. His wife wants to have a child. They're kind of like, we're getting way up there, man. Uh, you know, I'm, 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 my testosterone's going down. It's just hard to be energetic like I once was. Uh, we need to have a baby here soon or it's going to get real hard. And, and so God actually promises Abraham, hey, you're going to have a child. You're going to have a child. Don't worry. This is like 10 years later after that. Still waiting on this child. God brings him outside and he says, I'll make you into a great nation. And you'll have a great name. I'll bless you to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And curse those who dishonor you. I'm reading Genesis 12. Go to Genesis, if you, don't, if you want to look, Genesis 15, 6. He says, he looked toward heaven. And God says, number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. So look at the stars. See how many stars there are? That's how many offspring you're going to have. And he's probably like, better get on this real quick. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him, and God counted it to Abraham as righteousness. Now, it does not say Abraham was really obedient, he performed well, and then was justified. It says he believed the Lord, he had faith in God and his promises, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Through faith, he was declared to be in right relationship, not guilty, 
and acceptable to God. Now, next week, Paul's going to talk about the law was given hundreds of years after this interaction with Abraham. But we also know that Abraham was, was told to be circumcised, which was a big debate in Galatia. Well, that happened 14 years after his righteousness was credited to him by faith. So he has experience with God. He believes God. It's credited to him as righteousness. Then 14 years later, God says, now to, to set yourself apart, circumcise yourself, circumcise your family. That way I can mark you off as my people. Now, the, the, Paul's opponents got that all mixed up. They said to be saved, you had to be circumcised. To be counted as righteous, you had to have this ritual happen. But we see clearly here that faith came before obedience. Faith came before following this command of God. Look at verse 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Those who have faith are Abraham's children. Paul's essentially saying Gentiles in the Galatian church don't listen to these false teachers that esteem and promote their ethnic connection to Abraham and adhering to the law to be a true child of Abraham. You became a spiritual descendant of Abraham when you believed as he did. It's about faith. You, in this room, you become a spiritual descendant of Abraham. You are incorporated into God's people, God's family, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's about faith. We were all taught this song in Sunday school growing up. Now, now I grew up Catholic, so we didn't. Te- we weren't taught this song. But see if you can sing with me. Now, uh, I'm recording this, so you better sing along with me a, a little bit here. And if I don't, I'm going to bring you up front. And you're going to do it in front of everybody. So listen to me. Father Abraham. Come on. Father, stop. We're going to start over real quick here. Uh, I'm going to cut me chastising you out of the actual recording here. But let's try it. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. Now let's just praise the Lord. (laughs) You don't have to do that part. Uh, Right arm. And then you do it over again. You become... A son of Abraham, a daughter of Abraham, a child of Abraham through faith, not through works. So here's the first part of our big idea. Through faith, we become children of Abraham. Through faith, we become part of God's family. Through faith, we are incorporated into God's people. And we saw this back in the Old Testament, which really answers a theological question that comes up a lot. How are people saved in the Old Testament. How were people saved in the Old Testament? The same way they were saved in the New Testament. Faith. Faith. Faith in God. Now, this isn't just some generic faith. You know, I I believe God exists. Most people would say, conversing with others, yeah, I, I believe in a God. I believe that there's some mystical force out there, this benevolent God out there, uh, I believe in some, you know, some deity of sorts. No, but it's believing in God's promises that we see 
in Scripture. And so for the Old Testament saints, they had faith that God would do things like crush the head of the snake. We have the gospel all the way back in in Genesis. Faith that he would build this great nation that would end up blessing all nations. I mean, even the sacrificial system points to a future greater sacrifice. It was faith that this system was inadequate, that there was something greater coming. And so in the Old Testament, it was faith in God and in his promises that pointed forward to a future date when all these promises would be fulfilled in a Messiah. Now, they maybe couldn't have used this language of Jesus Christ. Uh, They maybe didn't know that name, but they looked forward in faith to the person and work of Jesus. We, as New Testament Christians, we look back in faith on what Jesus has accomplished for us through his death and resurrection. His perfect life, death, and resurrection. It's, it's always been about faith. Faith, faith. If you count the, there's three times he uses this term faith here. It's faith, it's faith, it's faith. There are two paths. The one that leads to salvation is about faith. And he uses a similar argument in verse eight. Look at verse eight. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, underline that, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you all nations will be blessed. So then, those who are of faith, underline faith right there, are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Underline faith right there. We think of the gospel as first being preached by Jesus. You know, the gospel really wasn't preached. Uh, it's a New Testament thing. It was when Jesus came on the scene and he started preaching the gospel. But here we have the gospel preached thousands and thousands of years before Jesus came onto the scene. This is in Genesis 12, which I mistakenly read earlier. It was when God first called Abram, which is the prequel version of Abraham. Abram turns into Abraham and and he, he preaches the gospel to them. And this is what he says. He says, I'll make you into a great nation. You have a great name. I'll bless you to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse you, those who will dishonor you and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What does it mean that through Abraham, all of the families on earth will be blessed? Paul talks about it next week, but we have to talk about it a little bit here just to make, make sense of this. Paul next week is going to talk about Jesus, who is a descendant of Abraham. He calls him the seed of Abraham who comes thousands of years later. So it is through Abraham's line that we get Jesus, son of Abraham, who came to bless everyone by opening up salvation to not just the Jews, but to Gentiles. And when I say Gentiles, I mean everybody who's not Jewish. Most of us in this room are probably Gentiles. Blessed here, is synonymous with justification. So if you want to write something, you can write down blessed here equals justification. The ultimate blessing that son of Abraham, Jesus, made available to you and I is to be made upright, to be made righteous and acceptable in God's sight and incorporated into his family. 
Here's the next part of our big idea. Through faith, we become children of Abraham justified. Last week, I was at a retreat and there was a pastor there who preached. And if you you don't know, uh, pastors have commonly used phrases. So if you listen to me preach more than like five times, you'll pick up that I say some of the same things. I've been told that I say the reality is a lot. The reality is this. The rea- so last week it was this pastor kept saying friends. And it was friends. You know, friends. Let me tell you this. Friends. I don't use that because you're not my friends. Uh, no. <laughs> I'm being very mean and spicy today. Uh, sorry. It's been a long week. Friends. And it was always kind of this like, am I really your friend? Are we friends? Friends. Another guy I heard preach three weeks ago, he would cons- constantly say, I submit to you. And he'd walk over to this stage and he goes, now I submit to you. I submit, it's like, is this an MMA fight? Who are you submitting to? Like, I submit to you. Paul's commonly used phrase is faith. It's faith. Can't stop talking about faith. You become Abraham's sons through faith. You are blessed through faith. You are justified by faith. Don't look for works to save you. In fact, if you rely on works to be declared righteous, you're going to find yourself not in a good place. Look at verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that the one, no one is justified before God by the law. Paul has been talking about the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. It's something entirely different. Rather, the one who does them, that is, lives by the law, shall live by them. The idea there is if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. So if you live by the law, then you'll be held accountable to the law. So there's a lot of stuff going on here, but the main idea is if you rely on your own law adherence, your own works for righteousness, If you're like, man, I got to be a good person to impress God, you are actually under a curse. Now, like a Harry Potter kind of curse? Like what kind of, you know, Gandalf is showing? Like what, what kind of curse are we talking about here? You are going to mess up. So if you want to adhere to the law to impress God, say, hey, God, look at me. Aren't I righteous? I'm going to break some news to you. You are going to mess up. You are going to sin. You are going to stumble. You are not going to do what God wants you to do. And you're going to do things that he doesn't want you to do. And if you're like, how dare you call me a sinner? Just just answer this question. In the last 48 hours, be honest. Have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength? All the time, every minute, has, has praising God, loving him, pursuing him, serving him, putting others. Has that been your heart's cry and desire for the past 48 hours consistently? Most of us would say, I'm, I mean, I got like maybe a good 10 minutes. I mean, we're, we're going to mess up. We're going to sin. I do. But sin doesn't come without consequences. And that's what we're talking about, curse here. We're under a curse in the sense that we experience 
and will one day fully experience the penalty of sin, the result of his judgment, condemnation, and death. I don't love talking about this as a pastor. It's not my favorite thing to talk about. But we will, we will, we are separated from a holy God, just God. And if we die in that state, we will be eternally separated from a holy and just God. This is where we get the idea of things like hell. I don't fully know what hell's going to be like. I, I'm not sure Satan has a pitchfork and, 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 and you know, uh, horns and a tail. That's more kind of culturally what we think, but it's not going to be a pleasant place because God will not be there. And, and so we will not experience him there. So apart from faith in Christ, everyone is in the same boat and the boat is sinking. Thank God the scripture doesn't end there. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He freed us. He bought us back from slavery, from the curse of the law, by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. Christ took upon himself the curse pronounced on all sinners, death and condemnation. He died the death you deserved and paid the penalty of your sin, the punishment of your sin, and he did it by hanging on a tree, the cross. Now, before Paul was converted, he was a persecutor of Christians. The guy who wrote this letter, he was a persecutor of Christians. He hated Christians. He believed that they were a heretical sect in part because of the cross. How could God allow the Messiah to be crucified? Paul calls it utter foolishness to the world and a stumbling block. How could God allow the Messiah to be crucified? Because reading this week in Judaism, when a man was executed, usually by stoning. He was then tied to a post, a tree, where his body would hang until sunset as a visible representation of rejection by God. This man is rejected by, by God. So can you see Paul's thinking? It's a, it was a sign of the curse, being cursed by God, rejected, condemned by God. So Paul's like, how, how could... How, Crucifixion is for the cursed. The Messiah can't be cursed. But we know that Paul was converted and the, open, the Holy Spirit opens his eyes to see the power and wisdom of God displayed on the cross because Jesus was cursed and that he took our sin upon himself and the sins of the world. Amen? We are, we're brought full circle then. In verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. He died so that Abraham's blessing might come to the nations, you and me, not through circumcision or submission to the law. That only leads to death, but through faith in Jesus. Earlier, we said that to be blessed meant to be justified. But here next, we see that that blessing was actually twofold. Look at the rest of verse 14. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So here's the full big idea. Through faith, we become Abraham's children justified and filled with the spirit. Now throughout the Old Testament, God had promised again and again that at a future date, 
a, a blessing was coming where God's people would possess his spirit, where he would come to live inside of his people. So Paul identifies the blessing of Abraham with the presence of the spirit here and showing that that time has come. He justifies us and he puts his spirit in us. That is what it means to be blessed as Abraham was blessed, was to be made right. And as we see in this new salvation era, it also means to receive the Holy Spirit. You have been justified before God. Now think about this. Are you going to be perfect from here on out? I mean, no. Unless your name is Jesus Christ, which if you claim that, we'll have a whole other conversation. Uh, you will not be perfect. And so he gives us the spirit. So he justifies us. He makes us legally righteous. So when God looks at us and he gives us the spirit to make us morally righteous so that day by day we can be empowered to, to glorify God, to choose obedience, to live in light of this truth. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells us and helps us to be faithful, helps us to love people, serve people, and to grow in Christ-likeness day by day. And we're going to talk about walking in the Spirit in a few weeks, but just a little side note question I just want to ask you. Do you know the Spirit? Do you know the Spirit? Do you regularly fellowship with the Spirit of God that lives in you. Most of our relationships with the Spirit is like a, a dysfunctional marriage. I read it this week. The typical relationship between believers and the Holy Spirit in today's church is too often like that between the husband and a wife in a bad marriage. They live under the same roof and the husband makes constant use of the wife's services, but he fails to communicate with her recognize her presence and celebrate his relationship with her. We should make a deliberate effort at the outset of every day to recognize that the Holy Spirit lives in us. He's our teacher. He's our guide. He's our source of holiness and he moves us to make much of God. So through faith, we become children of Abraham, justified and blessed with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Two paths, two different destinations. The path of faith leads to blessing and justification. The path of works leads to slavery, condemnation, and ultimately death. And if you're in this room right now and you're like, man, I'm not walking on the path of faith. I, I cannot urge you enough to see Jesus Christ for who he is. The seed of Abraham that made salvation possible to all, including you in this room, through his death and resurrection, so that we, might, we may be justified by putting our faith in him, so that we might be in right relationship with God, approved and accepted into his family, so that we might be saved by faith. Guys, in that path lies freedom, joy, the Spirit's presence, and, and, and peace and resting in, in what God has done for you. This path leads to death. And I say spiritual death, I, I mean just 
leads to, 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 to shame. It leads to trying to, to live, being obsessed with your performance, constantly evaluating your day. Did I do good enough today to make God happy? Guys, there lies burnout. <laughs> there lies shame. There lies condemnation. There lies frustration and depression and anxiety when we feel like we have to impress God. This path, that path of works leads to death. I see it every day. It leads to death. This path of faith leads to life. And if you're walking on this path already, I'll be honest with you, it's hard to keep your eyes on this path. It's easy to drift back over into legalism. It's easy to move our eyes back over into legalism. Luther, who I quoted at the beginning, said, the highest of all God's commands is this, that we ever hold up before our eyes the image of his dear son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He must daily be to our hearts the perfect mirror in which we behold how much God loves us and how well in his infinite goodness as a faithful God he has grandly cared for us and that he gave us his dear son for us. Do not let this mirror in the throne of grace be torn away from before your eyes. Keep in front of you. This is what Luther is saying. Keep in front of you the goodness of the gospel so that you will not stumble off the path of faith that brings life. And as you walk that path, surrender, submit, and yield to the Holy Spirit working in you to live a life of worship and obedience so that God may be made much of in you, O child of Abraham. Amen? Let's pray.